All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church. And we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite everyone to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Last week we had some problems with our speakers and being overdrive and a little too loud. And so if something is bothering you, uh, there's a good chance that I won't know it. So if you could just find Jake Crouch and we'll try to get it uh, fixed. If you can, just give me a thumbs up in the back if you can hear me. All right, we're going to spend some time praying together. We're going to ask the Lord to meet with us today as we give attention to his word. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, Lord, and we want to thank you, God, that you are a God who has revealed himself. And Lord, you could have been a God who concealed himself, Lord. And if you would have been that God, Lord, we would have known nothing about you. But you're a God of grace and you've made yourself known to us, Lord. And in many times and in many ways you have revealed yourself, Lord. And we have that testimony that you've given us in your word. You've revealed your attributes, Lord, your power your character, your plan. And most of all, Lord, you revealed yourself in your own Son that you sent among us, Lord, taking on our nature to die in our place to redeem us from our sins. And we want to gather together today to praise you, Lord, as your people whom you've bought, Lord, whom you've delivered, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so we thank you, God, for revealing many things to us in your word. And every single one of those things, Lord, is profitable. And we want to gather around your word today as humbled children, Lord. And we want to learn from you. And we confess our inability to make ourselves holy to make ourselves more like Christ. And so we ask for your help, Lord. You are our Father, and you are our God. And in the name of Jesus, we ask for your presence today and for the power of your Holy Spirit to dwell in our midst, Lord. Help me to preach and help us to hear. God, we gather around your word this morning as your servants, and we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 20. We're going to dive right in this morning to a passage where several things are moving around at the very beginning. Paul has just left the city of Troas and he's traveling in haste to get back to Jerusalem. He stops in this city called Miletus, and he called this meeting that we're about to read about together. Meeting of the church leadership. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read this text together. Acts 20, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. It says this. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos. Intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged. 
intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. Verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. And what we have here in Acts 20 is we have a, a, a council that summoned of church leadership. The leaders of the church at Ephesus are gathered together to meet Paul in this city of Miletus. And the tone of this meeting, there's a sober tone to it. And Paul's given out some real warnings uh, to these leaders, to these men. And there's also a lot of affection in this passage, at the very end of verse 27, Paul, Paul knows that he's not going to see these men again. And Acts 20 is going to end with these men and Paul weeping and embracing one another because they love each other. And so this is not a disconnected, cold meeting. This is men who have served Christ together. And this is like a farewell address that Paul knows he'll never see these men again. And the fact that they're church leaders, it warrants just a few comments about the importance of church leadership before we get further into this passage in Acts 20. 
How important are the leaders in the New Testament church? I want you to notice this just to begin with, that in Acts 20, church leaders are referred to by three different titles. Okay? The same group of men are referred to in three separate but distinct ways. And I want you to notice this in verse 17. This group of men is referred to as elders. They are the elders of the church in Ephesus. But if you were to jump down with me to verse 28, and we'll dig into this more next week, this same group of men is referred to as overseers. The elders, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Catch that? The group hadn't changed, just the word is a little bit different. The elders are called the overseers. And then again in verse 28, we have a verb that describes what these men do. And our ESV translation says that these men are to care for the church of God. Now literally that verb is to shepherd. And some of your versions may even render it that way this morning. And so I want us to catch the flow of what's being said about church leadership in Acts 20. Elders, overseers, and shepherds are three ways of referring to the same people, okay? The same men. And that word shepherd is where we get our modern word pastor from. A pastor is a shepherd. And this is really helpful for us because according to the New Testament, a pastor is an elder, is an overseer. These are three synonymous words that describe the same office in the New Testament. New Testament church leaders are pastors, they're elders, they're overseers. These men are described in a variety of ways, but there's not a variety of offices. There's one office of leadership. And as we head into Acts 20 this morning, I wonder how much you've thought about how important the leadership of the New Testament church is. I wonder how much you thought about that in your own walk with the Lord Jesus, of just how central, just how weighty, just how important this is. This gets to answering the question, who is going to lead the church after Jesus ascends? So everything's fine and good when Jesus is walking around in the human body on planet Earth, the, the people of God have a leader in Jesus Christ. Okay? And then he dies and then he's resurrected from the dead and then he ascends to the right hand of God. What happens to the leadership of the church? Who is to lead this bride of Jesus Christ? That's how central this question is in the New Testament. And maybe, maybe you're a step ahead of me. And, and, and you say, well, I know who leads the church after Jesus ascends. And you say, the apostles lead the church. And no doubt that that's true, but we're still in the same boat. Who leads the church after the last apostle dies and is buried? Who is going to lead the body of Christ, the people of God? And this gets us into the doctrine of church leadership, church government. And the good news for us is that the Bible has a lot to say about this particular doctrine. The Bible has a lot to say about who is to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want you to consider this morning 
is a neglected aspect of the new covenant. And here's what I mean. Jesus has richly provided for us everything that we could possibly need in the new covenant that was inaugurated with his blood. The covenant is like a basket where all the promises of God are, are gathered into. And when you refer to the covenant, you're referring to everything that Jesus has promised us. Everything that Jesus has promised to be for us. And one of the specific promises that Jesus has made in this new covenant is a provision for leaders. He has promised us that there will be qualified men in every generation to care for his bride, his church, his people. So if you have your Bibles, turn back with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 3. You know anything about Jeremiah, he's most famous for announcing this new covenant. And that comes in chapter 31 of his book. But if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, and I hope, if you're a disciple of Jesus, I hope that you're making it a practice to read through all of God's word. That you want to know everything that God has revealed about himself. Everything that God has said in Holy Scripture. And if you've ever made your way through the book of Jeremiah, one of the things that you're going to notice is a theme's going to emerge. And he does this several different times, several different chapters, where Jeremiah indicts the leadership in Israel. And he calls them false shepherds. Calls them false prophets and false shepherds. They're extended treatments where he indicts these men. That's one of the things that he's doing in the book of Jeremiah. He's indicting the leadership in Israel. And in the midst of this indictment, he begins to announce this coming hope that God is going to do this new thing, that he's going to make a new covenant with Israel. It's not going to be like the old covenant. Jeremiah 23 says he's going to raise up a righteous branch, an offshoot of David, and Jesus is going to reign on the throne of David. There's this coming one who's going to bring blessing. Jeremiah 31, he says there's this coming day where this righteous branch of David is going to do this redemptive work in the midst of the people of God. And he's going to write the law of God on their hearts. And they're all going to know God. From the least of them to the greatest, they're going to know God. And in the midst of this glorious covenant, Jeremiah also tells us that Jesus is going to make provision where this, these failures in Israel have failed. These leaders in Israel are false shepherds. Jesus is going to raise up true shepherds for the glory of his name. So I want you to read this with me. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. God promises this. This is a promise from the word of God. I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That is part of the covenant. That is part of the rich, glorious provision of Jesus Christ. Shepherds that know God. Shepherds according to the heart of God. Shepherds that really feed the sheep. These are the leaders 
and the New Testament church. These are the men that Paul is talking to in Acts 20. The New Testament says a lot about church leadership, New Testament church leadership. In fact, there's there's uh, two lists that are laid out of qualifications that these men must be these things. They must be blameless. You can find those, those lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. We'll talk more about that next week. These are a rich provision, a gift from the ascended Christ to his church. And so this is why Paul gathers these men in Miletus, because Paul knows what we just covered. Paul knows how important these leaders are going to be when Paul dies. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the apostle calls himself the last apostle. The last apostle. Jesus appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, Jesus appeared to me, is what Paul says. And what that means is that anyone who claims to be a capital A apostle after the Apostle Paul is in direct disagreement with what he reveals about himself. That leadership role is passed off from apostles, and now that leadership role is taken up by these elders, these pastors, these overseers. So Paul knows how important these men are for the health of the church, and so he gathers them to himself. And he does something really interesting, that he... He gathers these men up and he holds his own life as an example that he wants these men to imitate. He talks about himself. He talks about his faithfulness to serve Christ. He talks about his lifestyle, his aims in life. And if you have a twisted view of what it means to be Christ-centered, you're not going to have... A category for imitation. And we see it over and over again in the New Testament. Where, where godly leaders say things like, follow me, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in Acts 20. He saw himself as an example that he wanted these church leaders to follow. Now, one of the things that pastors are called to be and they're not only this they're called to be many other things but one of the things that they're called to be in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3 is they're called examples to the flock examples to the flock so I want you to catch this logic because this is going to this is going to drive what Paul says about himself to these leaders home to every one of us Paul sees himself as an example to these leaders and these leaders are to be an example to all the flock. And what that means is that the things that Paul says are going to be helpful to these leaders are also going to be helpful to all the flock because they're examples. And what that means is even though Acts 20 is primarily geared towards shepherds, pastors, leaders, and overseers, the vast majority of what we see revealed in Acts 20 has direct implications for every follower of Christ. And that's how I want you to hear his example this morning as having a direct line application to your life. So we're going to dive right in. First thing that Paul does, beginning in verse 18, is he appeals to his life. 
He appeals to his lifestyle. Verse 18, he says, You yourselves know, you yourselves know how I live among you. So he's talking about how he lived, what he did. And not just sometimes, but the pattern of his life. And then he's going to mention several different things in Acts 20. And what we're going to do, just to help us to better understand this, is we're going to categorize everything he's about to say about his lifestyle under two headings. That he puts himself forward to these church leaders. The Apostle Paul puts himself forward as a servant of the Lord Jesus and a preacher of the word of God. He served the Lord and he preached the word and he wants these leaders to know it. He's going to call on to respond. In verse 19, that's exactly what he says. He says, you know how I live. He says the whole time. And then look at that phrase in verse 19. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Now we're going to talk about that idea a whole lot. This morning about serving the Lord. And that simple little bitty phrase, it gets us to the, if you were to lay bare the foundations of the Christian life, that little bitty phrase gives us a glimpse of what ought to be happening in the life of every Christian, every moment that you live on planet Earth. We ought to be found serving the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul says about himself. Now, as we read the Bible, one of the things that is revealed to us is that human beings are hardwired. God made us as worshipers and servers. Uh, in the same way, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. We don't make the decision to be breathers. We are breathers. That's what we are. And in the same way, we don't make the decision to be worshipers and servers. That's what we are. That's what we do. That's what it means to be humans. And so the word of God tells us that every human being is serving something or someone. It's impossible not to do that. And here's what I mean by that. Every human being is living towards some end. They are pursuing some sort of goal. They have some sort of achievement that they're living to, to gain, to pursue. They're, they are leveraging their life in a certain direction. And the word of God calls that service. That's what they're serving. And it's really foundational for you to understand this about yourself. The question is not, will you serve something or someone? The fundamental thing is for you to identify who or what you are serving. Your life is being poured out somewhere in a certain direction. And we're being exhorted through Paul's example to serve the Lord Jesus. If you remember Jesus in his, in his wilderness temptation, being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, one of the things that the Lord Jesus taught us is he in, in response to Satan's temptation Jesus says you shall worship the Lord and then Jesus says in him only shall you serve that's the righteous commandment of Jesus Christ that we're going to serve that's not the question but Jesus commands us that only the Lord shall you serve 
Not only are we created to serve God, not only are we made to serve the Lord, Jesus reminds us that we are commanded to serve the Lord. It is the expectation of the God who made you that you would serve him. You shall worship the Lord and him only shall you serve. And what Paul is reminding us of is that he saw himself like that. That's how he sees himself. He's a servant. And that word is literally the word for slave. It's the Greek word doulos. And this is something that we can recover because this is a rich New Testament metaphor that one of the ways that a follower of Christ is described is a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave of Christ. It's not the only metaphor that we have in the word of God. We're called children of God. We're called Christ's sheep. But several times in the New Testament, we are told explicitly that because of what Jesus has done, we are ransomed slaves. We are his purchased possession. Jesus owns us. He is our master. He is our Lord. In fact, this is, this is, um, this is a, a big point of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 6, that he's exhorting and teaching these Christians, he wants them to understand that you've made, when you got converted to Jesus Christ, you made a transition, not, not, not only from slavery to freedom, that's part of a metaphor, but there's also a sense in when you transition from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. Where you, where you were no longer a, sin, a, a servant and a slave of sin and Satan. Now you're a free will slave of Jesus Christ. You are owned by Christ. If you have a to read list of books that you're wanting to get through, I want to commend this one to you. John MacArthur has a book called Slave where he digs into this metaphor in the New Testament. And he tries to recover this idea that has been largely lost in the Western church, that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul saw himself, owned by Christ, twice over, twice over. Would have been enough the first time. God is my creator. He owns me. But for Paul, it's twice over, creator and redeemer. God made me and he purchased me with the blood of his only son. I am his slave. Therefore, what is the only rational response? Is to spend your life serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. The only fitting thing. The only rational response. And I wonder if that's going to be said about you. Paul appealed back to the way he lived. Whole time I was among you. And he said, I serve the Lord. How's that going? Is that the banner that you can hang over your life? You know me. You know how I live. I serve the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I did this with all humility. I served the Lord in your midst with all humility. Verse 19. That means he didn't serve Jesus for what he could get out of it. He didn't serve Jesus to manipulate Christ. He didn't use Jesus as a means to get what he wanted. He didn't serve Jesus for self-glory. He served Jesus for Jesus' glory. He served at the pleasure of Jesus, at the pleasure of his master. He served with all humility. And then look at what he says in verse 19. He goes on to say, 
and also with tears and with trials. And one of the things that we need to recover, and this metaphor helps us, it really helps us. There's a reason why God breathed out this metaphor, and he wants us to know that we're slaves of Christ. And one of the ways that it helps us is it reminds us that we belong to him in season and out of season in every situation that we find ourselves in. We belong to another we live for the pleasure of another. And look at what Paul says here. He says, I serve the Lord. And then he says, with tears and with trials. And I want you to know that about the word of God. When things were painful, when things didn't go like Paul wanted, when things grieved him, when he experienced emotional pain, look at what the man did. He served Jesus in the midst of it. He served Jesus in the midst of tears. And then he goes on to say also trials, even, even a murder plot by Jews, even intense persecution. Things got painful, he served the Lord. Things got hard in his life, Paul says, yeah, I still serve the Lord. That's a really good reminder to us that when we're talking about being slaves of Christ and laying our lives down and serving the Lord, we're not just talking about when everything's going just like we would have it. We're not just talking about when all the stars of the universe line up and then we serve Jesus. We're talking about in the midst of pain, real disappointments, in the midst of things being really hard. Jesus is my master and I live for his pleasure. And when he says this, when the Apostle Paul says this about himself, one of the things that we can do, and it's really unfortunate, is we can kick him up on a pedestal as some super follower of Jesus Christ. And he is that. He is a super, he's a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But one of the things that we can wrongly understand is we can wrongly understand that this is, this is the normal Christian life. This is what Jesus expects from every one of his followers. Every single follower of Christ. He expects you to be sold out and to serve him. And so I want to remind you of that this morning. Uh, Mark 8, verse 34. This is Jesus' preaching of the gospel and calling his disciples to respond to him. And Jesus looks at every one of his disciples and he, he expects that they will do three things. Three things. He expects that every disciple will deny himself. That's what he says. Mark 8, 34. Deny yourself. And what this means is that Jesus' disciples will not live for themselves any longer. That stuff is in their past. They have denied themselves. They made that decision when they decided to follow Christ. I don't live for myself anymore. I have denied myself. Now that's a decision that we have to re renew daily and sometimes multiple times a day. But that's a follower of Christ. A follower of Jesus Christ is one who has denied themselves. They don't live for themselves. Number two, Jesus says, that, that his disciples will take up their cross. They will take up their cross. So not only will they not live for themselves any longer. Jesus says 
they're not going to be those who live for earthly comfort any longer. They have a cross on their back. That stuff is behind them. When they used to live for survival at all costs, comfort at all costs, me getting what makes me most comfortable at all costs. When you were converted to Jesus Christ, you took up a cross and you took up suffering and you decided to serve Jesus even if it was painful. Number three, Jesus' disciples, wherever you find them on planet Earth and whatever situation you find them in in their own life, you will find them Following Christ. Following Christ. All these other things they used to live for, now their entire life and their whole worldview is shaped by I must have Jesus. I must pursue Jesus. No matter the circumstances in every season of life. This is what it means to be a slave of Christ. And periodically, it's really helpful for us to pause when we see things like this in the Word of God. For us to pause and for us to remind ourselves, yes, Lord, this is what I signed up for. When I signed up to follow you, when I said yes to Jesus Christ, when I repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ alone, I signed up to be a slave. I signed up to, to spend and be spent for Christ. I signed up to serve them. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow them. That's what Jesus demands of every follower, every disciple. And this text gets really practical. One of the things that God's Word does is it stirs us up when we, when we see these things playing out. It stirs us up. Lord Jesus, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to be a bad servant. I don't want to be a selfish servant. I want to be found doing your will and not my will. And a lot of times that can be really vague of what that looks like. And Paul's next move is going to be very, very helpful. Because it gives us something tangible to aim at. If we really want to make our life count, then we're going to listen up to the next thing that he jumps into. So he calls himself a servant of the Lord. And that service plays out in many ways in Paul's life. But the place where he puts his finger and where he highlights in Acts 20 is he highlights this service of Jesus playing out in his preaching of the word of God. And he says this in several different ways. And each way adds a nuance. But it's really getting at the same thing. Same truth. Look at verse 20. He says he didn't shrink back. From declaring anything that was profitable. Anything that was profitable. He didn't shrink back from it. This means that he spent his life. Boldly preaching the word of God. Not cowardly. But boldly. One of the things we're reminded of with that phrase is there are things about Christ and there are things about Christianity that you're going to be tempted to shrink back from. And Paul says, I didn't do that. And you need to know that. You need to be ready for that temptation. There are things about Christ and things about the gospel and things about Christianity that are offensive 
to our flesh, that are offensive to unregenerate men and women. You think about this. You don't have to think long. And this ought to be really clear. Things about, uh, for example, the sovereignty of God. That is tremendously offensive to a human being that has a high view of their own autonomy. It's hard. You're going to be tempted to pull back and either not to say certain things or to soften certain things. What about the sinfulness of man? Is that not offensive to every single one of us of how God's word talks about us? That yes, we are image bearers. Yes, we have personal dignity from the moment we're conceived in the womb. But God's word says we're depraved. At the very core of who we are, we're rebellious. So there's things all over that you're going to be tempted to draw back, to soften. And Paul says, I didn't do that at all. I didn't shrink back. I boldly declared the truth. And this has implications for church leaders. And I want to mention just a few as we roll through. My job and Ryan's job, when we stand before you week in and week out, and we open God's word, we're going to be tempted to do exactly what Paul said he did not do. And one of the things that we're going to be tempted to do is to soften the truths of the gospel. And this text reminds us that our job is not to stand before this church or any pastor to any church and say, you know, some Christians say this and some Christians say this and I'll present both sides to you and you make up your own mind. I'll give you something to think about and, and you go study it for yourself. Some people say God is sovereign in all things. Some people say God is Sovereign, but not in this certain area. You decide for yourself. Some people say that people, that human beings are depraved. Other people say that uh, human beings at the, at the very core are good, even though every human being will sin, and you decide for yourself. That's not what these men are being exhorted to do. They're being exhorted to do the exact opposite. And our job is to open God's word and not to give you something to think about. Our, God, our job is to open God's word and say, thus says the Lord. This is the word of God. Our job is to bring the authority of Jesus Christ upon the church. And we do that through preaching his word. And so he's warning these men, you're going to be tempted to shrink back. I didn't do it. Verse 20, he also says, I taught publicly and from house to house. He taught the word of God everywhere. Wasn't just a Sunday job for the Apostle Paul. He's doing it in public. He's doing it from house to house. Verse 21, he testified to Jews and Greeks. That means he's preaching God's word to everybody. Not just those who are like him. He's making no distinctions. Verse 25, he goes about proclaiming the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the kingdom. That means he preached the rule and reign of Jesus. That means when the Apostle Paul talked about Jesus Christ, he didn't talk about Jesus as this accessory that you bring and add on to your life. He talked about Jesus as a king who reigns over every square inch of your existence. And he called men and women, all people everywhere, to repent and to serve Jesus 
as their king. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Think about how amazing that claim is. I taught you the whole counsel of God. Now, that doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul taught everything in the mind of God. Impossible to do. He's an infinite God. He's not referring here to the secret counsel of the Lord. He's referring to the things that God has revealed in his word. And he's saying, I declared to you all of it. Everything that God has said, I declared it to you. This plan that God has had from the beginning and even before time and has fulfilled in Christ, I declared it to you. The whole counsel of God. And his example here is instructive again for church leaders. This is the reason why from the very beginning of the church that week in and week out, almost every week at Grace Community Church, we're going through books of the Bible Verse by verse, chunk, just a little chunks at a time, starting where we left off the week before. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because we want to give you the whole counsel of God. Think about that. We don't want to give you our, our best thoughts on, on, on what you need to hear each week. That's not our job. Our job is to give you the whole counsel of God. And we don't know any better way to do this then opening the Bible, preaching it, saying what it says, and then doing the same thing next week with the, with the next verse, the next passage of Scripture, the whole counsel of God. But this principle, so we have direct line implications for leaders. But there's a principle here that also applies to every follower of Christ. And the principle that Paul is revealing when he talks about teaching the Word of God is this principle that your life is only going to count to the degree that it's spent on things that are eternal. Okay? Your life is only going to count on the to the degree to which you spend it on the eternal things. And what Paul is putting forward in his own life as an example is a life spent distributing and preaching the word of God counts forever. That's what he's saying here. Mark 13, Jesus says this about the Bible. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. One of the safest things for you to do to make your life count as a follower of Christ is to marry your life in every way you can imagine to Holy Scripture. The Holy Scripture. And then I'll say the flip side of that. One of the fastest ways to waste your life as a follower of Christ is to, is to neglect the eternal word of God. And so Paul is spending and being spent on things that last forever. And that's his example. This is his lifestyle. This is how he lived. And then we get a glimpse of this how he lived being driven and undergirded by how he thought. His lifestyle was being driven by a worldview, the way he thought. You see this in verse 22. Verse 22, Paul tells us he's going to Jerusalem. Some things he knows, other things he doesn't know. He knows that he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to be afflicted. 
He knows he's going to be in prison. He doesn't know how it's all going to shake out. That's what he tells him. Here's what I know. Ultimately, I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know if I'm going to be released. I don't know if I'm going to die. And then the amazing thing is that even though he knows that much about suffering, he keeps moving forward to Jerusalem. And the text tells us that he's got some urgency and some haste to get there. Now, I want you to ask, ask that question and meditate on this. What, what would make a man run towards suffering? This is exactly the same thing that Jesus did when the Gospels say that he set his face to Jerusalem. That Jesus didn't run away from suffering. He actually moved toward it. The Apostle Paul is doing the same thing. What would make a man do this? And then we get this mindset revealed in verse 24. This is amazing. Verse 24. I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I want to remind you that this particular part of God's word, this is not hyperbole. This is not an exalted way of talking. Okay? That doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. He really sees himself like this. And I'll read it again. You think about how amazing this is. I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If you could get inside the Apostle Paul's mind, that's how he thinks. My life is not valuable to me. My life is not precious to me. Now let's back up and let's remind ourselves, okay? This is, this is what Jesus taught for every one of his followers. We'll go back into Mark chapter 8, and I'll read verse 35. Jesus says this, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's one of the most counterintuitive things that Jesus ever said that if you wrap your arms and try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. And the only way to truly gain it is to take your hands off and lose it. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He took those words of Jesus serious. He wanted to save his life, and so he lost his life. In fact, one of the ways that he talks about his conversion when he looks back on the, on the moment where he met the Lord Jesus, he says, there's something that happened at that moment. I died. I was crucified with Christ. Galatians chapter 2 says, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's been converted to the Lord Jesus. He doesn't live for himself anymore. His life is not precious to him. Life is not valuable to him. This is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to have life in Christ. Now, I do want to qualify that. That the Apostle Paul is not saying, I hate myself. Some of you don't need any more reason to complain about how bad things are and how much you hate life at this particular moment. That's not what he's doing. 
He's not saying that my life doesn't have value because I just hate how things are going. His life doesn't have value and it's not precious to him because Jesus has become everything to him. Jesus is the Apostle Paul's supreme desire. He now lives and moves and he eats, sleeps and breathes for the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus has supremacy in his heart, in his affections, in his mind. Jesus is now his aim in all of life. And it's not his, his motto and his life goals are no longer to, to preserve myself and, and to get everything I can to have the most comfortable life I possibly can. Now his life goal is I want to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. His desire to please the Lord Jesus has swallowed up his desire to live for himself. And so if you were to have a conversation with him and you were to give him one of one of these, you mean really? I mean, really, Paul, no value, not precious to you. It's like, come on, man. Are you serious? He's not going to pat you on the shoulders like, yeah, that's just a little lot further. He's going to look at you in the face and he's going to say, I'm serious. If only I may finish my course. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. I eat, sleep, and breathe to serve my Lord. And he's calling us to be like him. This is what a follower of Christ looks like. This is single-mindedness. Okay? That you got a lot of things happening in your life every single day. A lot of things. Okay? But single-mindedness is this idea that you have one thing that everything else in your life bows down to. Your aim, your goal, your pursuit. And Jesus commands every disciple with these words, Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus commanded us to seek him first. Not to seek him second, not to give him uh, what's left over of your attention, not to seek him third, not to seek him when you have time, not to seek him when things are convenient. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else that the pagans live for, food, clothing, it'll be provided for you. Seek first the kingdom of God. So one of the things that I hope that this text is provoking in you and Paul's life is reminding you of his brothers and sisters. There is a race to be finished for Jesus Christ. You are in the middle of a race and you are charged to finish it. And Jesus is worthy to have this race finished. And your single mindedness. Your, your, your tunnel vision, everything else in your life ought to be bowing to this goal. If only I may finish my course. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing that I hope at the same time that this text is provoking you to do. That as you realize that this race is personal 
for you. That this race is to be ran. It's not going to finish. You're not going to finish it unless you run. My prayer is that the word of God today is urging you and exhorting you to get up and to run this race. To serve the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. We could say it this way. Woe to us. Woe to the man. Woe to the woman who gives King Jesus the leftovers of their life. Woe to that man and woe to that woman. We tremble at that warning. How dare we give the King of Kings, the King of Glory, stale breadcrumbs of our life for the highest of kings, the one who has died for our sins and in our place. Woe to us. If we give him the leftovers of our life, the leftovers, listen, of our time, the leftovers of our attention, the leftovers, brothers and sisters, of our affections. Woe to us. Jeremiah chapter 48 says these words. He says, Curse is the one who does the work of the Lord with slackness. God help us to not respond to Jesus with indifference, lukewarmness, or slackness. Let's heed this exhortation. Let's serve the Lord Jesus. Not with slackness, but with diligence, single-mindedness. I want to serve my Lord. I want to finish the ministry that Jesus has given me. I want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in every area of life with all of my life. I want everything else in my life to bow to Jesus. I'm tired of, of, of making Jesus bow to all these other things. I want to repent and I want Jesus to be served as king. Serving the Lord with all of our hearts. Jesus is worthy to be served. Ryan mentioned he's the Daniel 7, son of man. He is the one who stands in the presence of the ancient of days. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He has the voice like the sound of many waters. And he's worthy to be served because of who he is. But this text also reminds us that he's worthy to be served because of what he's done for us. What he's done for us. Verse 24, Paul reminds us of the gospel of the grace of God. Everything in his life is revolving around this grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so think about how helpful this is for us. That right in the, in the middle of a passage... That's exhorting every one of us to serve, serve, serve. We are being reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he served us first. Me and Ryan didn't even talk about that today. Mark chapter 10. Who is Jesus? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And what the grace of God does is it reminds us of exactly what Ryan told us earlier today, that before we ever dream of serving Jesus, he served us. Before we ever dreamed of serving our Lord, he served us. The grace of God. I want to mention that your, your eternal soul is dependent on you understanding and responding rightly to the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an example of how this works. Jesus has to serve you first before you ever dream of serving him. This is the grace of God. I want you to think about the relationship between a parent and a newborn baby. That at this particular stage in life, this little infant baby is dependent on their parents for everything. Everything. To feed them, to change them, clothe them, to protect them. And they, they don't have the resources to do that on their own. So they find themselves in this state of complete dependence. And it, this series... Is this serious in that relationship that if they don't allow their parents to serve them, they die. They die. And that's the gospel of the grace of God. That it reminds us that if we are not served by Jesus Christ, we die. We have no hope apart from being served by this glorious king. Steps into this world, lives the life that we could have never lived, and dies in our place as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So the gospel is that reminder. Either Jesus serves you, or you die. But it's also a reminder of the grace of God that when Jesus came to serve us, we weren't like that cute, small, cuddly, newborn, innocent baby. The Bible tells us that the picture was much different. And with that backdrop of our depravity, the grace of God begins to shine in our life. That there is none better than the Lord Jesus. There is no gospel, no good news that can compare to what Christ has done. He has loved us. And we're reminded of who he loved. Romans chapter 3 verse 18. When there was no fear of God before your eyes. Jesus served you. Paul never forgot who he was. He told his testimony in later letters that he wrote that he was a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor. And in this state that he received mercy and we need to be exhorted. Don't you forget who you were when Jesus came to serve you. No fear of God before your eyes. Romans 5 verse 10. When you were his enemy. When you were the enemy of Jesus Christ and you deserve to be punished by Christ, you deserve to be cast under his feet. Jesus served you. Jesus served you. He poured out his life as an atoning sacrifice for his enemies. Romans 8 verse 7. When you are living in hostility and hatred towards God. If you could have spit in God's face, you would have done it. If you would have stood at the cross of Jesus Christ, 
You would have ran the nails in his hands. You would have said the same thing that the crowd said at the crucifixion of Jesus. This man will not reign over me. And in that state of hostility and hatred towards God, what did Jesus do? Jesus served you. Not when you were prettied up and, and, and things were polished up and you're sitting in the middle of church and you're surrounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ. He didn't come and serve you while everything was cleaned up. He came and served you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The grace of God reminds us of who we were. The gospel of the grace of God reminds us that we have been loved like Jesus, by Jesus. And no one has loved us like Christ. And don't you get it? This is the message. This is the gospel that produces servants of the Lord. Because the clearer we see that picture, what's the very next move? All I want to do, Lord Jesus, is serve you. I am yours, Lord. I remember who I was when you saved me. I remember, Lord Jesus, my rebellion. And you moved towards me in grace. And you covered me with your righteousness. You covered my filthy nakedness with your glorious, spotless garments of righteousness. And all I want to do, Lord Jesus, is serve you. All I want to do, Lord Jesus, is bring glory and honor and praise to your name. And so we're being exhorted as we close today that the gospel of the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. The only rational response is to serve the Lord, to serve the one who died for our sins. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says this exact phrase, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for a reminder and a glimpse into your great love for us, Lord. And your love is better than life. It's better than life, Lord. To be forgiven of our sins, be covered in your righteousness, to be filled with, the, with your Holy Spirit, to know you as our Father in heaven. Lord, it's better than life. And we tell you today, as we draw near to you as a local church, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we want to serve you. Stir us up to do it with zeal, Lord. Give us strength to serve you in the midst of trials. Do it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.